Welcome back, Bible readers. This is the Rooted Podcast. We are in week number eight of our Bible reading. This week, we're going to cover Numbers chapter 8 through Numbers chapter 27, verse 11. So that is a large section of Numbers at the heart of what the book of Numbers is all about. Now, chapter 7 from last week described that very special time when the tabernacle was dedicated and consecrated through the gifts of God's people. Chapter 8 continues that theme of consecration, but this time with the priests. The first four verses of the chapter talk about the lighting of the lamps in the tabernacle, and this symbolized the Levites, who were supposed to represent the whole nation as lights to the world. And the rest of chapter 8 details the um, cleaning of the Levites and the offering of them for service. You see, the people played a role here by laying their hands on the Levites, and the Levites stood in the place of the people as their representatives. In the same way, the priests were closer to God and further from the people. And so we're told that service or time of service for a Levite was permitted only between the ages of 25 to 50. So you had 25 years of service. After 50, you were forced into retirement. But as noted earlier in chapter 4 of Numbers, uh, Levites had to be between the ages of 30 to 50 to carry the tabernacle. So there's a slight distinction there, but nonetheless, at the age of 50, you were forced into retirement. Um, so that was part of God's plan. Now in chapter 9, we find that it's time to observe the Passover. God had told the people that they needed to observe the Passover on the same day each year. The 14th day of the month, um, of the first month, excuse me, was the specific day. So this is the second observance of the Passover. The first observance occurred as the people exited Egypt in Exodus chapter 12. That means from Exodus chapter 12 to Numbers chapter 9 equals one year's time. That means a lot has happened in that one year's time. The Passover was vitally important to Israel, and we find in this chapter that God also makes provision for people who cannot keep the Passover because they might be unclean or on a journey. However, anyone who does not keep the Passover, not having any reason not to, will be cut off from the people. It's very specific. The time had come for the Israelites to resume the preparation to head towards the Promised Land, and so we are told that whenever the cloud of smoke or pillar of fire rose up and off the tabernacle, the people were to begin to break camp and follow the cloud. This was a rather visible way that God would lead the people and as they follow His leading. So chapter 10, we find out that God orders that two trumpets be made and that the priests would announce his movement by blowing the trumpets. Otherwise, the Israelites might continually watch the cloud at the tabernacle. They might get distracted and forget about their daily duties. So the trumpets were a audio or a hearing reminder that they needed to get up, break camp, and head in the direction that that pillar was moving. The trumpets were also used in a time of war when the people were living in the land. Other times, the trumpets were also blown on festival occasions. The impression here is an ordered and obedient departure from Sinai, not one of confusion, not one of disarray. And when you're moving two million people, everything has got to be in order. Now it's time to move out, and the Israelites break camp and proceed to march as the Lord had commanded them. And as they are organizing to move out, Moses speaks to his brother-in-law, asking him to be a guide or a help to them along the way. Hobab is his name. He lived in the area and was experienced in traveling the area that Moses was about to lead the people through. 
Now, be careful because Moses wasn't putting Hobab in the place of God's leading. Moses was just being wise and getting all the help he could find leading more than two million people through the wilderness. Also take note that the Ark of the Covenant goes before the entire procession of the Israelites. It was a visible reminder before the people of God's leadership that God was the one that was leading the people. Well, it doesn't take long before the people start to complain. The end of chapter 10 is like a high point, spiritually speaking, in the book of Numbers. And the beginning of chapter 11 records a spiritual decline that will result in God judging the nation. And those first few verses of chapter 11 tell us that God sent fire on the outskirts of the camp in response to the people's rebellion. Now, we don't know what this fire was. Maybe it was lightning or something else, but the text doesn't tell us, nor does the text tell us if people burned up or only things like bushes and tents were burned. Whatever the case, the people knew that this was God's response to their rebellious actions. And so Moses intercedes for the people, and God stops his discipline. Now, right after this first incident of complaining, we come right to a second incident rather quickly there in verse 4. This time, it's the mixed multitude who began to grumble about their situation. This group, uh, they were the ones who had come out of Egypt with God's people when they left during the Exodus. And their grumbling had infected the Israelites' attitude as they began to crave for something other than manna. But now it seems like Moses gets infected with the people's complaining spirit, and he joins in. But I'm not so sure. I think Moses was just caught in the middle and didn't know what to do. And so he cries out to the Lord for help. And God answers him by giving him help in the form of 70 elders. And they were ordained to help Moses carry the burden of the people. And once the 70 are gathered, God places the same spirit on them as he had done with Moses. And so the indication that the spirit actually was given to these elders was demonstrated by these 70 elders or men prophesying something that happened just this one time. And this event was so powerful that two men named Eldad and Medad, who for some reason or or another did not show up at the tabernacle, but were out in the campsites, they started prophesying where they were same time when the others at the tabernacle began to prophesy. Now, we know that Moses definitely needed the help, and God provided it to him with these 70 elders. We also find out here that God gave the people what they wanted. They were complaining about the manna, and so God's gracious provision of meat was rather a mixed blessing. He gave them what they were complaining about. But the people also got sick from the meat as well. Be careful what you ask for, I guess, is the lesson here. God's discipline was not vindictive, but it was designed to teach the people to accept what God had sent to them as best for them. God permitted trials in the wilderness to prepare them for the hardships they would encounter when they entered the land. And so the people's rebellion seems to also affect the leadership, as now Aaron and Miriam demonstrate their rebellious ways. They start complaining about their leadership status compared to Moses, and God makes known to Aaron and Miriam that normally he speaks to prophets through dreams and visions, but not in this case with Moses. With Moses, he speaks face-to-face, like a friend. So because of her actions, Miriam was stricken with leprosy. The sign of Moses' leadership was Miriam's leprosy. In a similar fashion, one of the first signs given to vindicate God's selection of Moses as leader of the people was also leprosy. And that incident happened back in Exodus chapter 4, verse 6. You know, it might be an interesting study to compare these two events of leprosy, one here and one in Exodus 4, 6. We don't have time for that, but if you want to take on that study, I encourage you to. 
Now, there were also several smaller rebellious acts amongst the people and the leadership, um, and, and they lead to a large and national act of rebellion that comes to the surface here in chapter 13 of Numbers. And this is the classic narrative about the 12 spies who are sent out by Moses to spy out the land. These spies do reconnaissance for 40 days, and they come back and give their report to Moses. And we're told that 10 of the 12 spies offer a bad report. Interestingly enough, we never remember the names of the 10 who offered the bad report, but these were in fact leaders among their respective clans and tribes. But nonetheless, two men are the focus here, two men that bring back the good report. Those two are Joshua and Caleb. But as we move down into chapter 14, because the people do not trust God to help them conquer the inhabitants of the land and drive them out, they suffer God's discipline. And at this point, God wants to get rid of the people for their unbelief and start over with Moses. But Moses intercedes for the people, and if he did not do this, we might be singing Father Moses had many sons today instead of Father Abraham. Now, we hear that there is a lot of complaining going on. And if you remember back to Exodus, God sent ten plagues to build the faith of his people in Egypt to show them that he was God. But in the wilderness, they complained against him in unbelief ten times. I think it's interesting how the two are connected. Evidently, the measure of their iniquity had reached its capacity from God's viewpoint with this tenth rebellious act. And it is noted in chapter 14 that ten times the Israelites tested God. You, look at, you can look at it verse 22 of chapter 14. They tested God by means of complaining. Now, if you remember, because the men took 40 days to spy out the land, God's punishment was 40 years of wandering, one year of wandering for every day of spying out the land. And by the way, the 10 men that gave a bad report, God took care of them quickly with a plague. Now, unfortunately, the people don't like the discipline that they've received, and they attempt to go up and take the land apart from God's command. And Moses tells them, the Lord will not be with you. However, they try anyway and are defeated. And let me make one comment here about associating the promised land with heaven. Over the years, some have wrongly tried to tie the concept of entering the land with entering heaven. And we must be very careful not to associate entering the promised land with saving faith in Christ. This present generation of Israelites was not permitted to enter the land because of their disobedience and their unbelief. They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, and that generation eventually dies off. This, is not, this does not mean that God didn't care for them while they wandered. Manna was still provided. This doesn't mean that God rejected them. No, he was still with them. He still desired a relationship with them. But because of their disobedience and unbelief that God could do what he said he was going to do, they missed out being able to enter the land and all the benefits and blessings that went with it. So in a similar fashion today, those believers who live a life of obedience to God, are the ones who will enjoy the blessings and benefits of God to a greater degree in this life and the life to come than those who don't obey. It doesn't mean that God rejects those who don't live a life of obedience. They still have a home in heaven if they put their faith in Christ. Now, back to Numbers chapter 15 through 19, because this section basically encompasses the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And Numbers records very few events during the wandering period in the wilderness. One generation was dying off, and a new one was emerging. And this was a major time of transition for Israel. We're told that those 20 years and under were part of the new generation. 
And so they grew up during this time, got married, had children. And while those who were older than 20 died in the wilderness per the punishment for their unbelief. As we move down into chapter 15, some of the laws are repeated for this new generation, specifically the laws of the offerings. The purpose for the repetition is that God sees the need to remind this new generation about the laws given on Mount Sinai, lest this new generation think that those laws are null and void or have been replaced. And that leads us right into chapter 16. And sometime during the wilderness wandering, we're not told what exact time, a fellow Kothite named Korah leads a rebellion against Moses and Aaron, challenging their claim to priestly authority. So in chapter 16, Moses takes up the challenge and tells the leaders of the rebellion to meet up tomorrow for a contest of sorts. These leaders had come to the conclusion that since all of Israel is a holy nation and a royal priesthood, that all Israelites had the right to serve in the priesthood. What they failed to remember was that God had chosen the Levites for priestly service because the nation as a whole committed idolatry at Sinai. Remember the incident of the golden calf there back in Exodus 32? The contest to prove who had authority involved the offering of incense because this was the most holy responsibility of the priests that brought them closest to God. And so the true heart of these rebels is shown. The text tells us that they were not satisfied with the position to which God had called them. They wanted more for the sake of prestige and power. It's very clear that the Levites' call was to minister and serve the people, not to power and position over them, just like a minister today is called to minister and serve people, not to lord his authority over the people he serves. But these leaders go a step further, making their claim personally against Moses' leadership. And this is a classic example of shifting blame. Disobedience and refusing to enter and inherit the promised land had resulted in death and defeat. And now these rebels sought to blame Moses for their current situation instead of accepting the responsibility for themselves. Well, judgment day came for these rebels, for Korah and his followers, and it was a graphic lesson to the rest of the nation that God would bury those who would rebel against his will. The point here is that rebellion against whom God has chosen is rebellion against God himself. This does not mean simply that leaders are always right. It says that if a leader is appointed by God, rebellion against leadership is rebellion against God. And Moses definitely was appointed by God. So Korah's followers are punished first as God opens up the earth beneath them, and they fall into the earth and are swallowed up. Then the 250 leaders that were offering incense at that contest we talked about earlier were burned up. And after their bodies are burned, Eleazar is told to pick up the bronze censers out of the fire, the same censers that these rebels attempted to use to prove their worth. And they were to take these and make them a permanent part of the altar to serve as another visual reminder of what happens when one who despises God stands in his presence. Now at this point, you would think that the people would get the point that God is in charge and he appoints whomever he chooses. But the sad reality is they don't. The very next day, that's what the text says, the very next day the people come to Moses and Aaron charging them with killing their leaders. And then they turned towards the tabernacle. It it seems that the people were ready to tear it down or destroy it. At that very moment, God began a sudden plague, a death plague. 
And as soon as Aaron and Moses saw what was happening, they started to intercede for the people. But even as quick as they were, almost 15,000 had already died before the plague finally ceased. In light of all that happened, God continues to confirm his choice of leaders in chapter 17. God demonstrates that the priesthood belongs to Aaron and his family through the budding of Aaron's rod. Aaron's budding rod was kept as a reminder of the people's rebellion against God's chosen leaders. And then in chapter 18, a complete and comprehensive explanation of the official duties of the priests and Levites follows this confirmation of the priesthood. These instructions were also to ensure that the tabernacle was protected and guarded so that another rebellious event wouldn't happen, like this one here that was started by Korah. As you read further down into chapter 19, God prescribes another method of cleansing. Now this is interesting because back in Leviticus, we're told that when a person becomes unclean, they would have to follow the proper procedure to become clean. And oftentimes they are clean until evening. Sometimes it would take several days for them to be clean. Well, with 15,000 plus dead bodies laying around on the ground due to the plague, many people were bound to become unclean, so much so that God prescribes another way to become clean, a quicker way. You see, God doesn't want all of his people out of fellowship with him for such a long period of time. And so this quicker method of cleansing was prescribed for us in chapter 19. Coming into chapter 20 marks the end of the years of wandering in the wilderness as a new generation begins to focus itself towards the promised land. In this chapter, we're told that Miriam dies and Moses and Aaron are not allowed to lead the people into the promised land because of their sin. The story goes that Moses was told to speak to the rock and that rock would miraculously provide water, but instead he strikes the rock with a staff. The rock still provided water for the people, but Moses disobeyed God's instruction. He failed to believe that God's way was the best way, and he took matters into his own hands. If this had been any other person, God might have dealt differently with the person. Leaders of God's people lose their ability to lead when they cease to rely upon God. Now, as the people begin their movement towards the land, Moses requests passage through the land of Edom, an easier route than going over the mountains. And even though Moses promises no detours through their land and they wouldn't take anything, the leaders of Edom refused to let the people go through, so Moses looks for another way. And the last part of this chapter concludes with Aaron's death, and the duties of the high priestly office is passed on to Aaron's son, Eleazar. Because the Israelites were not allowed to go through Edom to enter into the land, they try a southern route. And in chapter 1, the Israelites were again forced away from trying to enter the land, in that direction, and so thereby they're pushed northward along the eastern side of the promised land. And once again, during this trek, guess what happens? They begin to complain. This time, God sends poisonous snakes to bite them. The only remedy was to look in faith at the bronze snake that, were, that was raised above them on a pole. In the New Testament, in John chapter 3, verse 14, Jesus cites this exact incident, and he makes an analogy for it. But as the people continue their march northward, Moses requests again to have safe passage through enemy territory, but again is refused. What Israel could not do peaceably was often accomplished militarily. However, in the case of Balak, king of Moab, the situation would be a little bit different. Balak decided to hire a prophet named Balaam to curse Israel, 
hoping this would somehow gain him the upper hand and allow him to defeat the Israelites. Even though Balaam may not have been a shining example of a prophet, God can, as the saying goes, strike a mighty blow with a crooked stick. And to make a long story short, and don't miss the talking donkey in this passage, you can read about him, God does allow Balaam to go to Israel. But instead of curses, he blesses Israel. And the content of those blessings are in chapters 23 and 24. And these two chapters are the brightest chapters in the book. The dark sins of the past were forgiven, and a happy future was on the horizon. Now, I know we're over our time, but we just have two more chapters to talk about, so just stay with me, because as we move into chapter 25, we find problems once again. And this is possibly the worst rebellion in Israel's wilderness wanderings. The Moabites and Midianites were partners in the spiritual and sexual seduction of Israel. And ironically, it was the Midianites, among whom Moses took refuge when he left Egypt and from whom also he took a wife, these people become the instigators of Israel's idolatry. And so the text tells us that the people begin to worship and sacrifice to the false god Baal, a name that will come up again later on. And this was a direct violation of the heart of the Mosaic Covenant, which demanded total allegiance to God. And so God commands Moses to slay those who had been the leaders in the sin and to impale their bodies on a stake for all to see. God also commands Moses to instruct Israel's judges to slay every man guilty of the sin. Then the situation takes takes a turn for the worse, because until now, the sinning was taking place in the Moabite and Midianite camps. But now it's brought back to the camp of Israel. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the high priest, was so incensed by this blatant act of idolatry that he went into the tent after two offenders that had come into the camp and killed them both with one spear. You can read the details in verses 6 through 9. Of chapter 25. In the end, we're told that 24,000 Israelites lose their lives. That was the last of the older generation, because now in chapters 26 to 27, the focus is on the new and younger generation as they make preparations to enter the land. And chapter 26 is the second census of the people. And while, yes, this is a simple census, what's remarkable is that the total number of people has nearly remained unchanged. The first census back in Numbers chapter 1 was 603,550. The second census is 601,730, just a few thousand less than the first census. God could still fulfill his promises to the patriarchs even though the Israelites' failures had postponed their fulfillment. And so the number of people was also significant in terms of their land allotment in the promised land. Moses apportioned land to each tribe according to its population, and the casting of lots determined the location of each tribe's allotment. Also, there is a special note on the inheritance of women in chapter 27. These women in the incident believe God would bring them into the land, and this also shows the fairness and compassion on God's part in his provision for these women whose father had died in the wilderness. Some would say that in the Old Testament and in the New, women are looked down upon and treated harshly. But here in chapter 27 is a great example of where God provides for them, shows compassion to them, is fair towards them. All right, well, I hope you've enjoyed this week's summary for the upcoming week. That's all we have time for today. There's quite a bit to talk about here, as you can see, in a book that we might call Less Celebrated Than Others. Next week, we'll finish up the rest of Numbers. We still have about 10 more chapters to talk about, and we'll move into the book of Deuteronomy. And by the way, do you know that Deuteronomy is a favorite book of Jesus. 
In fact, we're told that it's Jesus' favorite book to quote from in the New Testament. More quotes from Jesus come from the book of Deuteronomy than any other book in the Old Testament. So Deuteronomy is an important book, and we're going to talk about that next week. Don't forget to email any questions to BibleReading at LMBC.org, and I will talk with you all next week.